On this week's episode, we play back the 1992 gritty crime thriller, Deep Cover, starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jeff Goldblum, Victoria Dillard, and Clarence Williams III. Set in Los Angeles and released the same month as the L.A. riots, Deep Cover was an instant hit with urban audiences and established Lawrence Fishburne as a bonafide movie star with his electric performance as an undercover DEA agent. In the conversation, Adrian and I discussed the film's cast and superb direction by actor-turned-director Bill Duke, the Hard as Nails title track featuring rapper-producer Dr. Dre and a then-20-year-old Snoop Dogg, as well as the movie's themes of race and identity and the futility of the war on drugs. We also delve into the recently released Criterion version of Deep Cover, which features new interviews with Fishburne and Duke. And we ask a question. What will be Deep Cover's lasting legacy? Will it be remembered as just another 90s hood movie or as another classic in the crime thriller genre, like A Serpico or To Live and Die in L.A. or The Killer? I'm Swain Hunt. Gather round as we run it down and unravel our pedigrees on this playback review of 1992's Deep Cover. It really goes hard, man. Even to this day, mm. even to this day, I was so surprised, and, and maybe because it's a thriller, and and I know that you and I are, you know, tend to be keen on on thrillers in general. Oh yeah, yeah. But but just the ideas, you know, the war on drugs, the crack epidemic, drug dealers as superstars, and as you know, charis- I mean, as drug dealers have always been charismatic. You can go back to Superfly and, you know, all of that stuff, mm-hmm. you know, and, mm-hmm. and the Mac and, you know, all, you know, drug dealers have always been, uh, a, had a certain kind of fascination with, with urban audiences and with black audiences in particular. But just rewatching this film, like you and I were talking before we started recording, there's so much craft in it. I mean, just absolute fantastic direction. Absolutely. Yeah. Just, just all of it. But. Um, you said before we again before you started recording. You said that you saw this in the theaters. I sure did. I sure did. We went on the Sunday after it opened. My mom was good about that. If it was like a hot movie that was out in the theater, mm-hmm. we was gonna see it. My, Mama Johnson was gonna make sure that we was gonna see it that weekend. Usually on a Sunday after like Sunday dinner, yo. All right, all right. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So, so my dad dropped this off. Me, my mom, and my sister, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, she had to have been there. And we went in and saw it, man, and just, ah, man. I, I didn't realize until I sat back and thought about it how much that movie really impacted me. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Um, like I was telling you before we started recording, there's so many quotables that I took from the movie myself, you know, that I still, you know, call upon years later, you know. And, and, and the movie is so underappreciated, in my opinion, that if I were to use those quotables in everyday life like I usually do, mm-hmm. I guarantee many people would be like, huh? Where, where's that from? What, what movie is that from? You know? Yeah. And just also, the thing I said before, um, and I think I've mentioned it on another show, or on this current incarnation of our show, is that the thing about Deep Cover 2 that really hit me um, as a kid was, not only was it the message, not only was it, you know, uh, Lawrence Fishburne, you know, in this really defining role just after Boys in the Hood, which is r- really why I took notice of him. Mm-hmm. 
it was also like the pervading darkness of it. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like it just felt like just this 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 darkness and I really that really attracted to me even though as a 12 year old I couldn't articulate that yeah you know and just the uh the charisma and the underlying danger that Fishburne brought into it and even the sliminess of Charles Martin Smith as Carver yeah oh yeah oh my god (laughs) even I got the message of that you know what I'm saying yeah so yeah I remember that it was just one of those movies that I saw it in the theater and it hit me and then it hit me differently when my dad got it from the um, video store, you know, um, after he dubbed it. <laughs> and we had it forever. And uh, <laughs> the early days of piracy. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so after we had it, you know, now at home to watch it, man, I watched it pretty often, you know, and uh, it hit me even further then. So. Yeah, this has always been one of my favorites. And it had been several years, you know, many years, in fact, that I since I had seen it up until, you know, uh, this week where we decided, hey, let's uh, review this um, on the episode. Yeah. Yeah. And it's the it's the 30th anniversary of Deep Cover, which came out in 1992. Yeah, it's a, it's an apt time to sit down and rewatch it and to uh, to revisit these characters in this this particular story. I'm pretty sure that uh, this was probably a date movie that my wife and I saw together because we ended up getting married the year after this came out. Oh, wow. So I'm I'm certain we saw this in the theater. And I was already a Fishburne fan because, you know, I'd seen him in school days. Mm. I actually Mm -hmm. saw him and uh, or I I actually remember him from uh, Red Heat. Where he played. Uh, oh yeah, he played the the FBI agent yeah. with the glasses. Yeah, yeah. yeah. it was yeah. like uh, Stubbs, I think, was his name. And uh, <laughs> and then I knew him briefly as you know from uh, King of New York as Jimmy Jump, you know. Yeah. And then of course later on, you know, he does more things. But I was familiar with him, so I was ready for this. And this really is the one that kind of catapulted him in my mind to becoming a, a true leading man and also a bona fide movie star. Mm-hmm. You know, just. You know, like you said, you know, his performance was just, I mean, he was just crackling on the screen. He was, you know, really handsome. He was lean. And he was kind of, you know, Jeff Goldblum even refers to him as a panther in the movie. And he kind of has that vibe, that kind of sleek, sexy, you know, masculine, ferocious vibe about him in this movie. And it's it's just undeniable. Yeah. And just the way that there was him, there was Wesley Snipes. And a couple of other guys who really ushered in, as far as the 90s going forward, mm-hmm. this new era of a movie star, this new era of a black movie star. You know what I'm saying? Because before that, really, we had movie stars, but they came from, and you tell me if I'm not mistaken, they came from like more comedy. Like Eddie Murphy, the big, the biggest movie star in the world for a time, was a comedian first. Richard Pryor, same thing. Mm-hmm. Here you have like actual actors, you know, somebody like Fishburne. He comes up through the ranks. He puts the time in, does his dues. And he gets these breaks, you know, culminating in here in deep cover. Where it's like, oh, yeah, yeah. He, he's leading, leading man material legitimately yeah. for yeah. sure. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think also, too, like you could you could also point to, you know, as a contemporary, obviously, Denzel. At the time. Oh, yes, of course, of course. Yeah. But, but prior to that, you know, you are talking about like Bill Cosby. You're maybe talking about Sidney Poitier, you know, maybe as as a, as, as a more serious actor. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you've got, you know, really the, the guys and gals, but the guys 
who were in the, who, uh, who were popular in the black exploitation era. So, you know, your Fred Williamson, your Jim Browns, your Jim Kellys and so on and so forth. Yeah, your Pam Greer. Yeah. 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 So it really is kind of like a, uh, a new wave, if you will, as far as the black leading man and, and all of them giving you kind of different, different, different swagger, different vibes, so to speak, you know, mm-hmm, uh, not give mm-hmm. all giving you the exact, the exact same thing. But this movie was released in April of 1992 and it was the same month as the LA riots. That's right. Yes. Mm-hmm. So it's very timely and it's set in Los Angeles. And for anyone who's never seen Deep Cover, I, I definitely would suggest you pause this because it's going to be filled with spoilers. Absolutely. Yeah. Go check. Go check it out. But the story is about a young Cincinnati cop named Russell Stevens, who's recruited by the DEA <clears throat> to go undercover and kind of work his way to the top of the, uh, the drug food chain in Los Angeles. Right. So he relocates from Ohio to L.A. He's renamed John Hull. That's like his 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 undercover name. And then he, he creates high level alliances with people who are in the drug network and kind of begins to lose himself in his cover. And by the by the end of the film, you know, shit goes mad sideways. And, and Steven starts to kind of question, you know, who he really is and, and why he's doing what he's doing and to what extent federal law enforcement is involved in the drug game in our country and even beyond our country. Exactly. And even more so him as being a black man within the country doing this job, mm-hmm. how it affects him personally as well. And given his own personal history also. Right. And as we mentioned yeah. earlier, you know, this film really highlights, you know, the beginnings of the war on drugs as far as uh, Reagan is concerned um, and going into the 90s, the crack <coughs> epidemic, which we had heard about for years. You know, this was at a time where people would make jokes like, oh, you look like a, a broke crackhead. You know, we would make the crackhead reference. But in the movie, you know, you see what crack and what drugs are doing to, you know, to black and brown communities. You see the uh, the, the hyper policing of black and brown people in this movie and in other movies that came out around that time. And, you know, the idea of an undercover agent who goes too far undercover and starts to lose himself or herself. You know, that's something that we, we've seen before, uh, before this film and in many times afterwards. But this is just really a quintessential uh, example of, of it in, in cinema. And, and just like Lawrence Fishburne, just right at a, at a great point uh, as, uh, as the agent, Russell Stevens. We've got uh, Jeff Goldblum's in the movie. Yeah. Adrian mentioned Charles Martin Smith, who we know from a lot of other things as, as Carver. Victoria Dillard as Betty McCutcheon and just a ton of uh, great character actors that we'll talk about uh, in, yeah. in the uh, in the conversation. But um, man, so there are some key scenes in this movie and it's it's impossible to not start with the opening sequence. Oh, man. Which is hauntingly scary because it's, you know, for anyone who's again, who's not seen the film. It's just basically this one uh, sequence uh, uh, shot in a crack house and there's a silhouetted figure in the foreground who's lighting up the pipe getting ready to suck on that glass dick and then there's another character who's in the in the in the background to the other side and he's laughing and smiling and it's almost like watching a hyena right before it kills an innocent it is really really disturbing um did that and and it's, it was crazy that this just that one shot and he runs all the credits over that one shot in super slow motion and then we get to the movie mm-hmm. but did you i mean did it hit you that way looking at that guy like kind of like giggling in the background 
Yes, because it because it was unnatural, and there's already something unnatural about seeing someone laugh, but ain't a damn thing funny. Right. You know what I'm saying? Like, there's something already very, very wrong with that. So to open the movie with that, it almost shows like the 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 mania that you may find yourself under if you hit that pipe, yo. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Because we actually see the shot in regular motion inside of the movie itself, you know, like, you know, 25, 30 minutes later, you know what I'm saying? So we see the context of the shot. And yes, they're in a crack house and we see what happens after that. But just that, that, that snapshot, that slow motion snapshot, if you will, it like encapsulates that in a nutshell. Yeah. Like crack, crack is like some other shit. Like, the way um, Stevens, you know, says a couple of times in the film describing other characters when they're high, he's like, man, you know, she's in the stratosphere, man. She shouldn't be here. You know, that's what it is. You so high that you out of it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. I, I have a friend who is uh, is a recovering drug addict and he's he's a minister now. And, you know, he uh, works uh, in rehab programs with, you know, with other people who are trying to get off drugs. And he's done that for 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 decades yeah. Since he got clean. But uh, his name is Mayshawn. And Mayshawn used to say that when he would hit the pipe, he said they would call it, refer to it as, as getting your bell rung. He said you'd hit that pipe and then they just sit back and your eyes just roll in the back of your head. And you just be like, you're just sitting there. Mm. Just just fucking zooted. And that's that's what that sequence was really was. And like you said, it wasn't there's nothing funny. Like, why is this guy laughing? Mm -hmm. But, you know, I guess, you know, when you see people who are addicted to crack and meth and whatnot, you know, they're just out of their minds to, 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 to some extent. But the interview room scene uh, with Taft and, uh, and Hull and Taft is played by uh, Clarence Williams III. Yes. Like, man, you know, that whole exchange they have and and Taft is talking to him and telling him, you know, look, you see these pic this picture? These are my beautiful African babies. And when you sell that shit on the street... You, it's like you're putting a gun to my baby's head, and then he he made me laugh when he was like, uh, and and uh, he says, so I'm gonna be like a dog after a bone. I'm gonna be like stink on doo doo. Doo doo. <laughs> yes. Now you have a right to file a complaint. It's all right. No, I'd file it if I were you. No, it's all right. You're a new face around here. I haven't seen you on the street before. Where are you from? From Oakland. Nah. You're not from Oakland. I know Oakland. <laughs> nah. You're from back east. Jersey, New York, D.C. Maybe. Let me ask you something. You got kids? Well, these are my African-American beautiful babies. If somebody put a gun to your baby's head, would you try and kill them if you could? Me too. And by selling that stuff, you're putting a gun to my baby's head. And let me warn you, I'm like a mad dog after a bone. I'd be all over you like stink on doo-doo. Trust me. I, 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 I quoted that, I quoted that to this day, yes. I'm gonna be on you like stink on doo-doo. Stink on doo-doo, yeah. <laughs> But I gotta admit, yo, when he when he started kicking him the uh, the the whole uh, Christian Christian line, and you believe read the Bible and rip, uh, sir, 
when 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 Fishburne's character started laughing at him, I laughed at him too. I was like, "What are you talking about, man? Do you know who you're talking to, or at least who you think you're talking to?" But the cool thing was, uh, the character of Taft. He was street smart. He knew. He said, "No, nah, you're not from Oakland. I know Oakland. You're from back east. Right. You're from back east. I can tell. You know." And uh, so anyway, that the courtroom scene with Jeff Goldblum, which solidified Audi five thousand. Audi five thousand. <laughs> We're out here, baby. We're out of here. I'm your lawyer. Yeah, but it solidified uh, Fishburne's character's relationship with uh, with Goldblum's character. And then the uh, the first real peak, real not even the first real violent peak, but the first point where you realize that Fishburne is John Hull is really like he's over in the, you know, he's going over into the other side is when Jeff Goldblum's character, David Jason tells him, look, Ivy killed one of your people. So you got to kill Ivy. Mm. And so you see Fishburne again, I'm going to make that, that Panther, that, 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 that jungle animal vibe where he's prowling in the club and he sees Ivy dancing with his girl. And then he, he slowly walks into the bathroom and locks the door behind him. And Ivy's standing there at the urinal about to, you know, t- take a piss and said, yeah, I knew you would come. Yeah. And then after he kills him and Ivy grabs his, his, his chest and that bloody paw print on his face and on his clothes, he said, I, I knew you was a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> you bitch. Oh, oh. <laughs> I knew you'd come. Should have popped me when my back was turned, bitch. What the fuck you looking at? Man, you a bitch. You wanna suck it, bitch? Or you wanna drink? <laughs> you in a coma, motherfucker? Anyway, and, and look, the, the the actor who played Ivy uh, is, is, is an actor named uh, James T. Morris, looking like a leftover from the House Party movies, yo, looking like a yeah, yeah. full force, full force reject, yo, get busy one time. <laughs> when I was rewatching the movie, man, my wife came in the room and she was like, "What? What are you watching?" I said, "Deep Cover," and then she watched the rest of it with me. She was like, "Man, this is still really good." Mm. But when Fishburne came in the bathroom, she, she made the same point that I made, when she was like. What's up with that deep ass tank top this mug is wearing? Damn, that thing dipped low. Yeah, yo. That was funny. <laughs> that mug was almost to his belly button. Y'all like, damn, yo. <laughs> you gonna kill him or strip for him? Shit. <laughs> man, that was crazy. Oh man. man. But are there any other like real, really key scenes that's that stand stand out to you when you rewatch this movie where you're just like, okay, here go my part right here? Oh man, yes, yes. The part where um, after they they find out that Eddie snitched on them, you know, and they go down to meet Barbosa in the pool hall. Mm-hmm. You know, Barbosa's down there, you know, shooting pool, eating his linguine or whatever. Mm-hmm. And the actor that plays Eddie, Roger Gwynver Smith, peak form. This might be yeah. the apex mountain <laughs> of. <laughs> 
<laughs> to, to quote the read watchables, this may be the apex mountain of Roger, <laughs> of those type of roles that Smith is taking on. Yeah, the sniveling kind of behind the scenes guy that you can't trust. <laughs> he's a, 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 a he's a crackhead, so he's all, always in the stratosphere. You know what I'm saying? And I had gotten the um, deep cover on Criterion Edition, mm-hmm. and I was watching some of the um, back material on that. And um, Fishburner Duke, uh, Bill Duke, had mentioned that um, Smith had actually improvised, you know, a lot of his dialogue, and it comes across that way. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like Smith improvised a lot of it, but. In that particular scene down in that pool hall, it's it's like that that could be like a one act play by itself. You know, he's being accused of this. He obviously did what they said he did. Now, what are going to be the consequences? Right. And he gets so nervous when Barbosa is like, no, no, you make a man, you give me a hundred thousand. Right. You know, give me a hundred thousand. And, you know, Eddie's like, uh, give me 24 hours. 24 hours. No, no, no. Now. And he starts counting down from I, 10. I mean, I mean Phyllis, I mean, come on, man. I, mean, I could five. I, I, I get you 20. I mean, I, can, I, I mean, Two. come on. I could, come, come on, Phyllis, man. I mean, I get money for y'all, man. I mean, come on, man. I mean, just. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and he's just making stuff. And it's, it's so good. He is so good. Yeah. And then when it gets down to the late in the countdown, you see him pick up a fork. And he goes to stab Felix. He's like, ah! <laughs> and Felix's like, okay, okay, no, no, no. Okay, okay, no, no. And this is how menacing Gregory Sierra is as Felix, right? He's like, no, no, I know, I know, it's just a joke, it's just a joke. And Eddie's like, just crying. He's like, I'm sorry, I don't know what I did, I don't know, I don't know what I was doing. And he has his back turned. <laughs> Felix grabs that pool cue, yeah, and he, and he, and just on his face, he got his face all screwed up, like, mm, mm, mm. And he just comes back and whacks Eddie against the back of the legs. And you know them pool cues are heavy, yo, especially that, that handle that, that, Yeah, You know yeah. that shit hurt. And just Eddie ends up on the pool table and just Barbosa just beats him, beats him, beats him. As I remember that when I saw that in the theater. I was like, oh, my brutal. Yeah. Oh, my God. Just beats, just beats him to death with a pool stick on the pool table. In a in a half filled room full of people, and everybody's just got to stand there and watch it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then to top it off, just Barbosa's looking around. He's like, "You have to kill a man sometime. It's liberating." Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> but then Jeff Goldblum with one of Goldblumisms, <laughs> you know, <laughs> David, have you ever killed a man? Have you ever seen a man killed? Uh, once, uh, when I was in summer camp, uh, uh, we were swimming, and uh, the council was driving a boat, and it, 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 it ran this ran this guy over. That's not what he meant. No, you <laughs> <laughs> talking about in these streets? Yeah, yo, like you do it. You know what I'm saying? But what's funny is that plays back later into the movie. Yeah, you know, a few scenes later to where Jason, well, David Jason, uh, Goldblum's character. He puts himself in a position to where, yes, now he has to kill somebody, but he doesn't even do it himself quite yet. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So it's it's funny how the movie just is so adroit and it's it's so taut, yet the screenplay is so tight that everything weaves so beautifully yeah. amongst themselves. The scenes, there's a payoff, and the characters are great. So rich, yeah. very rich. Yeah, yeah. And um, and that actually begins uh, John Hall's ascension, Fishburne's character, 
his ascension in the drug network because he gets arrested. He doesn't squeal. Eddie gets arrested. Eddie Eddie uh, squeals on him. And so they end up taking Eddie out. And then now he kind of takes over as uh, and begins his alliance with uh, with David Jason, who's playing. You know, and Fishburne's, I mean, excuse me, Goldblum's character, David Jason, is kind of like a high powered attorney who's involved in the drug game. Uh, you're not sure if it's just for money or if it's for thrills or both. But um, but he's involved in the drug game. And so that begins their kind of partnership uh, and then working with Felix. And then eventually, you know, uh, they fall out with Felix, literally fall out with Felix, like out of the goddamn limousine at 60 miles an hour. <laughs> Look, Barbosa was like, he was like, he shot Barbosa in the hand and said, jump out of the car, jump out of the car. And he tells he tells David, David uh, Fish, uh, Goldblum's character before he jumps out, he's like, he says, I, I'll see you, Dave. He says, yeah, 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 we'll get shrimp. And then kicks his ass yeah. out of the car. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh. another, some other great scenes in the movie is, is when he and uh, when Fishburne and Goldblum go to meet Betty, who's played by Victoria Dillard. Mm. And that's the first time that Fishburne's character meets uh, Betty. And you can tell there's an instant attraction and there's a whole kind of a sexy, sexy cat and mouse going on. In the conversation, I want two of these masks. I want two of them. I want my mask. Yeah. I want my mask. <laughs> and then the other, another scene that I always remember, and it's it never fails to sting me as if it's happening to me, mm. is when they finally, when they kill Felix, and they finally meet Gallegos, and Gallegos, Gallegos tells them, they meet outside, he tells them, yeah, Felix owed me a debt, so since you killed Felix, now you owe me a debt. And he goes over to Fishburne's character... Puts his hand on his face, and then he grabs Fishburne's earring in his ear and rips it out of his ear. And you see the ah! blood, and I was like, ah, ah, ah God damn, ah. And, and that's when you knew, okay, again, they're turning another corner here where it's not going to go well with Guy Eagles. We know it's not going to go well. I got one other scene before we move on that was really, really good, um, and I really appreciated it on this rewatch. Um the 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 junkie mother who lives uh, right across the hall from um, John Hall in that hotel, Belinda, with a young son. Yes, Belinda. Mm-hmm. That scene, who that actress was very good for the small point that she had. Right. Very good. Like where she's like, you know, it's obvious that John Hall is taking a liking to her son. You know what I'm saying? You know, he, you know, gives him money to go get something to eat and everything. And then after the son leaves to go get something to eat, she's talking to. You know, a hall, and it ends up, it culminates with, yeah, yeah, you like him, right? You like him, right? You like him, right? Uh, I, I can let you have him for $3,000. And that little sniff after she says that means that's exactly what she's going to use it for. I can let you have him for $3,000. Yep. Damn. I was like, damn, that very good. Yep. That was very good. Very good. You know, and then when he's like, nah, nah, I, two, I, I can let him have for two. Like, damn, your only son? And then she's like, I mean, this is my fucking kid, man. I mean, what, you think he's not worth that? It's my fucking kid. I mean, I mean, come on, man. And she knows he's a drug dealer. She knows what kind of money he makes. I know what you got in there. Yeah, exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. She points that out. The actor, actress's name is uh, uh, Kamala Lopez. Ah, okay. Yeah, she was really, really good uh, in that role, like you said. Very good, very good. Man, let's talk a little bit about some of the uh, some of the other actors in the movie. We've mentioned. Um, well, let, let's start with I guess start with Fishburne and with Duke because mm-hmm. this is an interesting point uh, in Fishburne's career. You know, a lot of times we talk and we say, "Oh, this was like you know 
like when we talked about the thing, you know, this was this was uh, Keith David's first film. Lawrence Fishburne was a seasoned young actor by the time he got to this movie. He had done some theater work. He was in Cornbread Earl and Me. He was in. Uh, <laughs> yes. He was famously in Apocalypse Now, Rumblefish. I mentioned Red Heat and King of New York, School Days, Boys in the Hood. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, of course, after this movie, we see him in, you know, uh, What's Love Got to Do With It? And then later on, the Matrix movies. And his career, to me, he's got some great highlights. I feel like he should have had one or two more in there, like really, really big movies. Um, he did show up in like Mission Impossible 3. He had a role in Mission Impossible 3. But, mm-hmm. you know, these this is really like peak period for him between like uh, school days Boys in the Hood, this movie, and then when you get into What's Love Got to Do With It, and then eventually into the Matrix movies in the late 90s. This is really the peak peak period for him. Now, Bill Duke, yes, uh, the director of the film, was an actor first, and he had done a lot of TV, and he'd done some feature film work uh, before this. But um, we know him from, and I remember him from Car Wash. Did you see him in Car Wash? Of course, yeah. yes, yes. <laughs> As the Muslim brother, yes. Yes, of course. Uh, he was in Car Wash, uh, American Gigolo, and of course we know him from Commando and Predator. Yes. You yes. know, uh, those roles. And he was also in Action Jackson. I think he played the uh, the, the, the uh, police chief, angry police chief in uh, Action Jackson, right? N- Action, not so angry. Not so angry. It was a change. Like, oh, he was, he was on his smooth tip. He was on that smooth shit. He was just smooth, yes. Jackson, <laughs> I don't know what you're doing, but you better stop it. there we go there we go that's my man yo but uh but as a director he had done like a a tv movie he had directed a rage in harlem and then he did this film and then later on he did uh sister act two and he he rejoined uh with fishburn for hoodlum uh later on in the 90s but what were you gonna say i'm sorry i was gonna add to that that i didn't realize that he actually was directing television in the late 80s as well Mm mm-hmm uh, I was watching again some of that supplemental material on um, the Deep Cover Criterion, mm-hmm. and um, in the Q and A, he was mentioning that he actually was one of the uh, first black directors, you know, out there really doing a lot of episodic television. Like he uh, directed Hill Street Blues, uh, he directed uh, episodes of Knots Landing, and he also directed, um, especially uh, Dallas, mm-hmm. you know. And um, so he had been around for a minute in all facets of, you know. Um, the uh, the industry, um, and obviously we know him as an actor, but I really, really think that he's an underrated director as well, very much so. Oh, I would absolutely agree. Um, he did some Cagney and Lacey as well in the, uh, in the 80s, and um, there's a story from his autobiography where he talks about showing up for his first day directing an episode of Dallas. He mentioned that. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. Did he? Yeah, he shows up on the lot and he's wearing like a suit and tie and jacket and he's, you know, he's dressed, you know, dressed to the nines. And he says that the uh, the guard who was on gate duty stopped him and and assumed that he was a delivery person asking him who what he was delivering and who he was delivering to. Mm-hmm. And uh, Duke said he had to bite his tongue and basically said, you know, I'm delivering my talent as a director to the set of Dallas. You know, because this guy and we don't know who the, the guard was. It could have been a black guy, white guy. But they just assume if a black guy shows up, he's delivering something. He's not there for anything important. And quite the opposite, you know, was 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 the was the was was true. Yeah. But but um but yeah, so and then like uh Jeff Goldblum, you know, at this point in his career, he had done uh The Big Chill and Invasion of the Body Snatchers, 
Um, he did The Fly. And then, of course, later on, he does Jurassic Park. All the Jurassic Parks, as a matter of fact. Yeah. In uh, Independ- Independence Day. Uh, Charles Martin Smith. And I was trying to remember where I saw what I remember him from the most. I remember him from The Untouchables. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I remember him as the bucktooth guy from uh, uh, American Graffiti. Yes, that's where most people would probably know him yeah. from. He was also in um, this movie this movie called Never Cry Wolf, where he was in Alaska hanging out with some wolves. Mm-hmm. Um, he just always plays like that because he his, his phenotype, if you will, he always plays the nerdy guy. You know what I'm saying? Right. He always just plays the nerdy guy. But that's what made him perfect to play Carver mm-hmm. is that he's just unassuming, but he's asking these really just pointed questions. Uh, so uh, tell me, John, what's the difference between a black man and a nigger? Right. Uh, Sir, uh. that whole sequence, <laughs> that whole sequence was like, and they put that right up front. That's during the beginning of the movie. I mean, it's after we see uh, Glenn Turman, who plays uh, a young Russell Stevens dad. He was, he's a junkie and a criminal. We see him get killed in a uh, robbing a robbing a store, Mayor Royce. But uh, but after that, when you when you see those cops, they're all being it's basically where. Joe Carver works for the DEA and he's interviewing cops in Ohio to go undercover in LA. And so, but you know, he's asking them all the same question. What's the difference between a black man and a nigger? And he gets an angry response. He gets a bewildered response from uh, Clifton Powell, who I, I caught uh, as one of the, uh, the cops. Yeah. And then he finally, he finally talks, he, he, he asked a question to Lawrence Fishburne, but you're right. He's nerdy and he's smart and he's unassuming. Right. So, you know, you constantly see him playing that and playing those mind games, you know, with uh, with Stevens as as the uh, as a, as the undercover cop to keep him undercover. You know, he starts, you know, mm-hmm. Stevens starts cracking and saying, man, I got to get out, man. I got to get out of this. I don't know what I'm doing. And then he starts telling them the story about the crack baby and what happens to the crack baby. And it's just a, a, a mind game to guilt him into continuing to do, you know, what Carver wants to do, trying to continue to get uh, Stevens to continue uh uh, with the uh, undercover assignment. What am I doing here, man? John, have you ever seen a crack baby? Newborn crack baby, six hours old, screaming its heart out because it's going through withdrawal. You know, over the course of the next year, it doesn't learn to crawl or walk or talk on time got deformities, physical deformities, mental deformities. It's got brain damage, lowered IQ, dyslexia, God only knows what else. Maybe it goes to school, but it can't learn. And it's violent, so it gets in trouble with the law. It's unable to form any kind of close emotional ties, so it's faced with the prospect of going through this hideous, miserable life completely alone. And there are millions of these babies, John. There's a whole generation of your people who are being destroyed before they are even born. Because these guys, Barbosa, Gallegos, Guzman, are bringing that shit into this country. Now, do you remember what you're doing here? Yeah. Good. 
one minor thing that I noticed upon this rewatch. Okay, after um, Stevens is in, like mm-hmm. he's like, okay, I'm ready to go undercover. And there's that one scene where they're sitting in that darkened room and they're kind of going over slides of here are the major players, you know, that you'll be dealing with. These are the guys that we want. On the flow chart, the pyramid chart, do you know that Bill Duke's face is on the pyramid chart? No. <laughs> with the other drug dealers? Yes. Yes. <laughs> if you look real close, it's just a picture of Bill Duke up there with the rest of them just looking like Bill Duke just... <laughs> <laughs> looking, looking like, you know you fucked up, right? You know you fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> and, and what's curious, another thing, now that you mentioned that, is that, okay, the Menace to Society connection... Um, oh, Bill I know Duke what you're going to say. I know what you're going to say. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. You know where I'm going. <laughs> yeah. And there is and, and the actor who played Kane, the star of Men's to Society, he's in the movie as well for a brief scene where Ivy shoots the young boy who's dealing drugs. Mm-hmm. They go Tyron Turner right there, dead in front. Yep. I was like, Kane. <laughs> yep. <laughs> you, you know what's so funny about that? I never caught that in previous watches of the of the movie. Yeah. And when I was watching it the other night, I was taking notes on my phone because I said I want to take my notes chronologically, you know, to what happens in the film. And I paused on that sequence to write something down. I was like, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> That's Tyron Turner from uh from Minister Society. And then I had to check his IMDB and it was correct. I was like, God damn, you know. And it's funny, I, I think probably because of New Line Cinema connection, they might have all been under contract or whatnot as contract players, maybe. So there, there, there's several people in here that you've seen in other New Line movies around that time. So Yeah, 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 for sure. But uh, other actors in the movie, Victoria Dillard is great as Betty, and she was also in Ricochet mm. and did a lot of TV. She was on Spin, she was on Spin City for, uh, for quite a few years. Um, okay. okay. Uh, Gregory Sierra, who Adrian mentioned earlier, uh, who plays Felix Barbosa, did a ton of TV. He was also uh, he was, he's regular on Sanford and Son as Julio. Julio, yes. And, uh, and he was on Barney Miller, but he, he did a bunch of television. I mean, just a ton of it. Uh, and then, of course, Clarence Williams III, who plays Detective Taft. We know him as Link from Mod Squad. Let's just go ahead yes, and start there. Yes, of course. There. Yeah, that's, yeah. He's on. Link from Mod Squad. But for me, he was Prince's wife-beating daddy in Purple Rain. And he was the crazy, out-of-control, psycho criminal in 52 Pickup. <sighs> but and, and that's what a lot of people may know him from like that wild eyed his fro is all over the place <sighs> yep. because if people watched um, I think he was in um, Tales from the Hood as like this narrator kind he of was. yes yes and uh, you know he's just great at that but he's also wonderful here in deep cover too oh yeah you know what I'm saying like he, he reigns it in and it's just like it's great yeah. He's like the conscience that's on Fishburne's shoulder, if you right. will. Right. You know? Yeah. Right. You have Carver as the devil on one, one shoulder, and then you have him as the angel trying to get him to do right on the other shoulder. And he also he also pops up in uh, Half Baked as the uh, the drug dealer with the curlers <laughs> in his hair, remember? <laughs> of course he does. <laughs> the, the last actor in the movie that I wanted to kind of uh, mention is Adrian brought up uh, Roger uh, Gwenver Smith. Mm. who plays Eddie in the movie. He was in School Days. He was in Do the Right Thing. He was in Eve's Bayou. Uh, he was in Malcolm X. He was in American Gangster. He's had a long, studied career as a, as a character actor. Um, 
and has and, and seemingly maybe it's not as many as we think, but it seems as if he's played this sniveling kind of a kind of a uh, yes. weaselly guy at least one or two other times than this. It's like it seems, it seems like every almost every role, even in like small ass roles, like he was in this movie uh, Panther that Mario Van Peebles directed about the Black Panthers, right? Okay. He's in this scene where he apparently apparently. He's the one that ratted out to the FBI about the Panthers. So it's because of Roger <laughs> Grinver Smith, he brought down the Black Panthers. <laughs> he was the Wild Bill, yo. He was Wild Bill. Yeah, yo. <laughs> like, God damn, it's always one of you motherfuckers in there somewhere. <laughs> oh, God man. damn. Oh, man. That's crazy, man. Um, have, you, have you thought about this particular film, it comes out in 1992, but have you thought about like where it falls? Cause you know, and, and I do want to ask the question later on as far as, you know, you know, it's ranking amongst, you know, uh, not even just hood movies pro se, uh, but really amongst like, you know, crime thrillers and whatnot. And, and you even mentioned before we started recording that you thought this really was kind of a noir and we can, we can, uh, you know, we can, uh, litigate we can debate that day. here in a yeah, minute, but, yeah. <laughs> but like, Boys in the Hood and New Jack City came out in 91, the year before this. And this movie was adapted from a book. That's right. And, and originally, you know, the original screenplay uh, was, a, was featured a, a white undercover agent. But I think because of the success of Boys in the Hood and New Jack City and maybe some of Spike Lee's films uh, at the time, they said, well, let's, let's change it to a black actor and it totally, a black uh, leading, leading character. And that totally changed the dynamic of the movie. So... Yeah. This comes out in 92. Juice also comes out in 92, mm. directed by our, our friend mm-hmm. Ernest Dickerson. And then Menace to Society and Poetic Justice come out in 93, the year after. Yes. And then we have stuff like Friday comes out in 95. You got Clockers also in 95. Clock, Another clockers in 95. Joint. Set It All comes out in 96. That's right. And then almost a well, really a full decade later, Paid in Full comes out in two thousand two. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and that's kind of mm-hmm. like the last gasp of you know these kinds of movies uh, to some extent. But yeah. Um, but did you think about where this falls in in and amongst those kinds of films? And and to me, it's always stood head and shoulders above many of the rest. I mean, I love Minister Society, I love uh, Friday, and I love New Jack City and Boys in the Hood. But I, I have mm-hmm. always had a special place in my heart for this particular film as, as far as black crime movies go. You know what it is? And, and I'm, I'm, of, I'm of two minds of that. <clears throat> First off, I, I think the reason why it stands head and shoulders above many of the others is there is an age dynamic as well. You have to, you have to remember that, you know, stuff like Boys in the Hood, um, Menace to Society, those are directed by... 20 year olds, like early 20 year olds, young guys, young talents. Right. You know, they're dynamic young talents who were given a shot, probably for like one of the few times ever in the industry where young black men at at that time could get those type of shots, you know what I'm saying? And make feature films from major studios, you know? Mm -hmm. And there was commercial success as well as critical success too. Whereas Deep Cover was directed by an older man in Bill Duke mm-hmm. who had been a veteran of the industry and there was more craft into what he was making yeah. as opposed to the other guys where it was just very energetic, very of the moment, you know, and there's this wild, I shouldn't say wild, um, that there's an energy that crackles on the screen, 
but the craft still needs to catch up to it in some regard. Right. Whereas it's already there with deep cover, you know, with Bill Duke, you know. And the other thing, the other mind that I'm of with those movies is that <clears throat> the closer that you get to the epicenter, if you will, mm-hmm. of that renaissance of black film in the early 90s, like that 91, 92, 93 period, you know, those movies have an intent, you know. It's like our foot is in the door and we're using the foot to crack open that door more and more and more, you know, to some degree to allow more of ourselves, the culture, the message to come across. And you find that most strongest in those movies earlier in that period. Whereas the farther you get from the epicenter of that, they, for lack of a better word, to start becoming just black movies, black urban movies. Mm -hmm. It's not so much of a defined message. It's just, here's a thriller or a crime movie featuring black folks. You know what I'm saying? Right. So I do find it strongest <clears throat> closer to that earlier part of the Renaissance, if you will, you know, as opposed to later in the decade going into the very tail end, like you said, in the early 2000s, where it's almost just like black crime movies. Right. Know? I didn't even think about the yeah. fact that the uh, the age difference, like you're talking about, you know, Spike Lee, F. Gary Gray, John Singleton, these guys were in their, you know, their early 20s, you know, like you're saying, directing these movies. And so where... You know, Spike Lee went to film school. Singleton went to film school. Uh, F. Gary Gray, I don't believe he went to I, film I school. Say, I think I, I, I almost want to say he has some type of training, if I'm not mistaken, like something. Well, like he, he was he did a he bunch has, of music videos. I remember that. That's what it is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He did a he did a ton of music videos, uh, but I I'm not certain if he had if he actually went to school or had training as a director. But you know, Friday, of course, is, is a classic for sure. Um, yeah. But but I, I agree with you. I didn't realize that. And then Bill Duke, you know, was probably in his 30s easily uh, at the time when he uh, when he directed Deep Cover. There was an article that I found uh, that was written about Deep Cover. And it was it was actually talking about the the uh, recently released Criterion version of it that you got a copy of uh, that just mm-hmm. came out here. Uh, and the guy who wrote the article is named uh, Edward Mendez. I'm going to read read what he said about Duke <clears throat> in the movie. Okay. Um, he says, quote, Duke's career in film and television, as highlighted in a self-narrated retrospective on his filmography, is built upon and informed as much by his dedication to the art and craft of film and media as it is by the politics Mm -hmm. of racial representation on the screen and behind the camera. Duke has remained committed throughout his tenure to work that speaks to black experiences and expressivities. Working on deep cover through the support of New Line Cinema, Duke delivered on his filmmaking praxis. You know, so he's kind of talking to the idea, uh, like you are, of, you know, Duke having this this long uh, uh, career in, in film and television, uh, being a person who has skills in front of the camera and behind the camera, yes. and also wanted to make movies with an intent. Right. Not just capture a moment from my neighborhood or a moment in somebody else's life or whatever. But I want to, I have, I'm telling movies with intent and with a certain kind of heart behind it. Um, which, which I think was, was, was absolutely uh, on point. One of the things that I heard it came up in the, uh, in the, in the criterion DVD. And you tell me if you remember this, wasn't there uh, an interview session with, uh, with Duke and Fishburne with uh, Elvis Mitchell and Elvis Mitchell. Yes. Which was very, very good, which was very good. Yeah. They, they definitely dropped some nuggets in there. And, um, that's, that's why I'd heard the anecdote that, um, um, Bill Duke told about, you know, his first day at Dallas, you know, on the set of Dallas and stuff like that. And, um, 
Get this, though. Here, here's a surprising one. Um, Fishburne related a story that he was talking to his agent one day, and his agent just said, oh, oh, by the way, um, Marlon Brando wants to um, talk to you. Marlon Brando? What? <laughs> oh, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. And his agent's like, yeah, yeah, he's been asking to uh, speak with you. So, you know, uh, Fishburne is like, oh, okay, yeah, sure, sure. So he got the number, and he called Marlon Brando. And Brando apparently said, you know, um, I've been watching Deep Cover. And Fishburne was like, wow. And, you know, <clears throat> Brando was just basically saying, he was like, you know, what you're doing there on screen, you're doing our work, you know, meaning that your acting is, you know, the, the type of acting that, you know, he's used to. You know, it's not this new school of acting, whatever that is. Mm -hmm. You know, he really felt that come across, you know, in Fishburne's portrayal. Mm. He was like, you're doing our work. I just wanted to let you know that, you know, and I very much, you know, enjoy the movie and I enjoy your performance. You know, which, of course, I mean, who who wouldn't be flattered by Brando right. telling them that, you know, I mean, come on. That's one of the, that's one of the gods, yeah. you know. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought that was cool. And just the, um, I think it was at a film school. It's like at the yeah, New York Film Conservatory, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. And um, so it was a lot of, you know, film students and screenwriters there that were asking some very good questions and really eliciting some great answers from, you know, the two of them, along with, you know, obviously Elvis Mitchell, you know, um, casting his lot in there as well. Um, but yeah, that, that was, yeah, definitely very good. Very good. I, I actually would love to check that out, man, and, uh, and really uh, uh, see the, uh, the interview because I think it probably was like chuck full of, uh, of nuggets. Mm -hmm. one, of the, uh, one of the things my reading uncovered was apparently Fishburne was not a fan of Carlito's Way because he saw it as a ripoff of Deep Cover. <laughs> he did mention that. That's right. He did mention that. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, and then also Fishburne and Victoria Dillard dated for a few years uh, after Deep Cover. They met on the movie and they dated for a few years after that. I don't blame him. Yeah. But go yeah, ahead. Victoria Dillard is <laughs> absolutely stunning in this movie. Um, and then mm -hmm. a, a, a quick aside. It's kind of a sad aside. But uh, Victoria D uh, Dillard was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. What? Uh, so, yeah, some years ago, and so she doesn't really act anymore. She doesn't, she doesn't yeah. do anything in front of the camera. I think she writes, but she doesn't act anymore. And oddly enough, you know, she was on Spin City with Michael J. Fox, and Michael J. Fox was also who also diagnosed with uh, with Parkinson's. Oh man! Yeah, kind of a mm. kind of a crazy turn of events. But um, I always I always was hoping for more from her too. She was she was really wonderful. Yeah, and, and you could almost kind of tell in Deep Cover that she was still. Still a fresh, a fresh talent. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like, like in, in the scenes where she um, is conversing with um, Fishburne, you know, it's like she still is trying to, you know, hold her own, so to speak, acting wise. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? But she, she still does a good job. But yeah, she was just a very promising young talent that, yeah, you, you definitely wanted more from for sure. It's funny that um, they meet and they talk about the masks and there's this whole kind of a, a, of a, a romantic chemistry between them instantly. And then later on, he shows up at her shop uh, like at 10 o'clock at night or whatever. And she says, you know, what are you doing here? It's nighttime. He says, I'm a nocturnal creature. I do a lot of things at night, you know? And then again, there's this whole dance back and forth. And a couple of the funny quotes, you talking about Audi 5000 and we talked about, uh, <laughs> uh, 
Clarence Williams, the third character, Taft, talking about stink on doo doo. Doo doo. <laughs> when uh, David says, uh, David Jason Goldblum's character says, uh, a man has two things in this world his word and his balls. Or is that three? <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> and then, when they're, uh, speaking of balls, when they're busting each other's balls and they're walking away, uh, and, uh, and David Jason says, uh, he says, Hey John, he says, what's the, he says, what's the craziest sexual thing you ever did? You ever had been with two women at the same time? And he says, yeah, your mother and your father. <laughs> the, the, and and the, the, did my mama go buck wild on you? <laughs> Boy, they, they, they really had a, a good chemistry, uh, Goldblum and Fishburne. Yeah, man. Like, especially... You know, in, 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 a, in a dark turn of events, of course, like when they're outside um, in the alley discussing, you know, you got to kill Ivy, right? Like they look like just, just two boys. just like, man, you know, you got to do this, right? Right. Yeah. Yep. Just leaning, just leaning on the whip, talking about what has to be done. Mm-hmm. So absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, let's let's end it, man. You said you wanted to to to, uh, to throw out that you thought that this was a noir. I, I feel like it's more like a crime movie or a crime thriller. And less of a noir, but you said you feel it's more of a noir, but I'll let you go ahead and, and make the first point. Okay, uh, to litigate it, we have a figure that descends into this underworld, this lone figure, if you will. He may have connections, he may not, but he descends into this underworld. And it's a shadowy underworld filled with these other characters that mean him harm, but yet he somehow has to navigate amongst them to get to his goal, whatever that may be. And uh, Fishburne does that as John Hall, Russell Stevens, that character, you know? Mm -hmm. And while he's in this underworld, he starts to lose himself as well. And it's the, the darkness that's there, both sim uh, the, the cinematography, but also the darkness within the character and the characters, mm -hmm. you know, that he comes across. And Speaking of the cinema, cinematography, there are several um, instances where Duke really chooses like noir type angles. After he after um, Hall shoots Ivy in the club, he goes out and it's already raining. You know, he's at the top of the staircase. Right. And the rain's coming down. And at the bottom, David Jason is coming up like you did it. You did it. You know, and just just this great Dutch angle kind of it's tilted and he's coming up the stairs and everything. It's, it's those type of um, camera moves that you find most often in, you know, um, film noir, where it's already a heightened uh, version of reality, mm -hmm. you know, and just the camera moves and the cinematography and the uh, lighting. Especially, oh, especially the lighting. There's a lot of great lighting in here, that blue lighting. Mm -hmm. um, Orange in places. Yes, yes. It's all so intentional. Mm -hmm. And those are the same elements to me that you find in a lot of film noir from the story, the lighting and the cinematography. And that's why I think Deep Cover kind of qualifies in its own way as a film noir. I got you. I got you. I'll allow it. I, I don't necessarily agree. It just never hit me as a noir. Sure. Um, largely because, you know, Fishburne's character willingly goes into the uh, underworld. Mm. You know, like he accepts that willingly. Also, too, for me, I knew it was going to end badly, but I never for one second thought that Fishburne was not going to be the hero at the end of the film. No, he's not doomed. Yeah. Yeah, he wasn't doomed ever for me. He, I, I was always on his side and I was always waiting on the moment where he was going to pull himself out of the uh, the quagmire of, of his uh, undercover assignment and resume his place as, as, as a law enforcement person or as a, you know, as a protector. 
Uh, although I do, I will give also. I, I will go ahead and, and, and add to your uh, to your uh, to your to your case that the the use of voiceovers and the jailhouse poems. Oh yes, of course. Of that course. that absolutely kind of gave like you know okay this definitely feels noirish, you know to have that have that be an aspect of the uh, of the movie. So um, yeah, for sure. Now we I know we said we were trying to end it, but we cannot end it. We cannot end it without mentioning the title track for the movie. I can feel it. Well, yeah, we definitely, we definitely want to talk about that. The the uh, the title track, uh, "Deep Cover" by uh, Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg, who at the time Snoop was just twenty years old. Man, it's his debut, and he just immediate classic. Yeah, wow. Yeah, yeah. That track, that track, man, that track hit so hard. Still, mm-hmm. yeah, even to this day, and and, and uh, as you and I have discussed. It just made Snoop an instant star. There wasn't well, there was one person I know who didn't think he was an instant star. <laughs> and he he might be one of the hosts of this show. But uh <laughs> Man, you snitching, you snitching. <laughs> but there wasn't any one person who didn't hear that and think, who is this dude? Like who the fuck is this? And it really plays to uh to Dre's ability to collaborate with other talented people and to find stars. I mean, he was a part of NWA. Mm-hmm. He finds Snoop. He finds Eminem. Mm-hmm. Eminem finds 50 Cent. 50 Cent, right. You know what I'm saying? So it's just like he's got kind of a, uh, a pedigree as far as, you know, working with new superstars. And Snoop absolutely was that, man. But I I, I oh, love I loved this track again. It, and, and, and the other thing that's always so weird to me, it's... Other than the the, the high pitch synthesizers, it's still a very New York sounding production. The way the drums hit and the loops and everything, the, the, the boom sound- back of the drums, yeah, yeah, it's mm-hmm. it's it's very yeah. New York sounding. It's it's only the you know those kind of psychotic synthesizer lines that uh that that make it feel quote West Coast, but you know West Coast wasn't really West Coast in 1992. It wasn't until a little bit later. That's right. And, you know, this is right, right before the chronic. So it almost this track also kind of ushers in. It kind of preps the plate, if you will, for like that G-Funk era, you know, that that's coming for the chronic mm-hmm. because it starts getting our ears ready to hear that. And of course, the chronic also, obviously is a classic, but sonically, this kind of preps us to get ready for the era that's coming. And, you know, when we were leaving the theater, it, it didn't hit me. Like, I instantly was walking out, like, you know, jerking it, all that shit. But it was still just like, that's a perfect... <laughs> yeah, 12-year-old me wasn't up there like, oh, oh, oh. You know what I'm saying? But it was the perfect way to end that movie. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, especially, like, with that match strike, because you're like... Man, is he striking a match to hit the pipe? No, we about to get into like this dark narrative, if you will. Sir, you know, yeah, yeah, and you don't stop. It's one eight seven on the undercover cop. Oh man, (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, no. Hey, before we go, before we go, one last question. All right. So where do you think, what do you, what do you think Deep Cover's legacy is going to be? Do you think it's going to be remembered as just, you know, uh, you know, for lack of a better term, just another 90s hood movie? Or do you think it is going to be seen along the lines of, you know, a Serpico and uh, Donnie Brasco mm. and uh, mm. To Live and Die in L.A. or, um, uh, other, you know, just other great thrillers, you know, The Killer. It, it, is it going to be remembered in that same way or will it be kind of like you think it's going to be kind of like an overlooked gem, so to speak? I, I think in a certain way, because, you know, um, most movies, most, you know, they're selected for the criterion. You know, they're not they're not selected just for nothing. You know what I'm saying? Right. And I hope that this edition, you know, um, it being released through criterion brings more attention to it. Because I definitely think it's an underappreciated gem. Always has been since the outset of its release, mm-hmm. once it left theaters. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? And, and I would hope that people find it and people really, really take a look at it because there is so much craft in there. But you're also talking about the, the ascent of Fishburne's career to where he really is becoming a wonderful, wonderful actor. You know, you're starting to find him at the beginning of his um, nadir, if you will. I think that's the correct term, you know, where he's like making that ascent. And it's like you're really watching someone become the actor that they're supposed to be. And also with Bill Duke as well. You know, we knew him obviously from other productions. But right here in, in this moment in time, this is where everything coalesced. And it's, it's wonderful. It's like this wonderful nugget that I think people will go back and appreciate again and again. And I hope that people find it and, and enjoy it for years to come. And just, you know, really finds its place amongst the great dealers that you mentioned and beyond. I heartily agree. That concludes this episode of Sidebar Forever, hosted by Dwight Clark, Swain Hunt, and Adrian Johnson. You can find us online at sidebarforever.com. Any emails or questions can be directed to us at sidebarforever at gmail.com. And also, subscribe to us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram.